Section 19 of Starlight Ranch and Other Stories of Army Life on the Frontier by Charles King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Story 4 The Worst Man in the Troop, Part 2. A few minutes after, the reliefs being told off, the prisoners sent out to work, and the officers of the day, new and old, having made their reports to the commanding officer, Mr. Billings returned to the guard-house, and, directing his sergeant to accompany him, proceeded to make a deliberate inspection of the premises. The guard-room itself was neat, clean, and dry. The garrison prison-room was well ventilated and tidy as such rooms ever can be made. The Indian prison-room, despite the fact that it was empty and every shutter was thrown wide open to the breeze, had that indefinable, suffocating odour which continued aboriginal occupancy will give to any apartment. But it was the cells Mr. Billings desired to see, and the sergeant led him to a row of heavily barred doors of rough, unplaned timber with a little grating in each, and from one of these gratings there peered forth a pair of feverishly glittering eyes, and a face, not bloated and flushed, as with recent and heavy potations, but white, haggard, twitching, and a husky voice in piteous appeal addressed the sergeant. "'Oh, for God's sake, Billy, get me something, or it'll kill me!' "'Hush, O'Grady,' said the sergeant. "'Here's the officer of the day.' Mr. Billings took one look at the wan face, only dimly visible in that prison light, for the poor little man shrank back as he recognized the form of his lieutenant. "'Open that door, sergeant.' With alacrity the order was obeyed, and the heavy door swung back upon its hinges. "'O'Grady,' said the officer of the day, in a tone gentle as that he would have employed in speaking to a woman, "'come out here to me.' I'm afraid you are sick." Shaking, trembling, twitching in every limb, with wild, dilated eyes and almost palsied step, Grady came out. "'Look to him a moment, sergeant,' said Mr. Billings, and bending low he stepped into the cell. The atmosphere was stifling, and in another instant he backed out into the hallway. Sergeant, was it by the commanding officer's order that O'Grady was put in there? No, sir, Captain Buxton's. See that he is not returned there during my tour, unless the orders come from Major Stannard. Bring O'Grady into the prison room. Here, in the purer air and brighter light, he looked carefully over the poor fellow as the latter stood before him, quivering from head to foot and hiding his face in his shaking hands. Then the lieutenant took him gently by the arm and led him to a bunk. O'Grady, man, lie down here. I'm going to get something that will help you. Tell me one thing. How long had you been drinking before you were confined? About forty-eight hours, sir, off and on. How long since you ate anything? I don't know, sir. Not for two days, I think. Well, try and lie still. I'm coming back to you in a very few minutes." And with that Mr. Billings strode from the room, leaving O'Grady dazed, wonder-stricken, gazing stupidly after him. The lieutenant went straight to his quarters, took a goodly-sized goblet from the painted pine sideboard, and with practiced hand 
proceeded to mix therein a beverage in which granulated sugar, Angostura bitters, and a few drops of lime juice entered as minor ingredients, and the coldest of spring water and a brimming measure of whiskey as constituents of a greater quality and quantity. Filling with this mixture a small leather-covered flask, and stowing it away within the breast pocket of his blouse, he returned to the guard-house, musing as he went, "'If this be treason,' said Patrick Henry, "'make the most of it. If this be conduct prejudicial, and so on,' say I, "'do your damnedest. That man would be in the horrors of jim-jams in half an hour more, if it were not for this.' and so saying to himself he entered the prison-room called to the sergeant to bring him some cold water and then approached o'grady who rose unsteadily and strove to stand attention but the effort was too much and again he covered his face with his arms and threw himself in utter misery at the foot of the bunk mr billings drew the flask from his pocket and touching o'grady's shoulder caused him to raise his head drink this my lad i would not give it to you at another time but you need it now eagerly it was seized eagerly drained and then after he had swallowed a long draught of the water o'grady slowly rose to his feet looking with eyes rapidly softening and losing their wild glare upon the young officer who stood before him once or twice he passed his hands across his forehead as though to sweep away the cobwebs that pressed upon his brain but for a moment he did not essay a word little by little the colour crept back to his cheek and noting this mr billings smiled very quietly and said now o'grady lie down you will be able to sleep now until the men come in at noon then you shall have another drink and you'll be able to eat what i send you if you cannot sleep call the sergeant of the guard or if you want anything i'll come to you then with tears starting to his eyes the soldier found words i thank the lieutenant if i live a thousand years sir this will never be forgotten never sir i'd have gone crazy without your help sir mr billings held out his hand and taking that of his prisoner gave it a cordial grip that's all right o'grady Try to sleep now, and we'll pull you through. Good-bye for the present. And, with a heart lighter somehow than it had been of late, the lieutenant left. At noon that day, when the prisoners came in from labor, and the officers of the day inspected their general condition before permitting them to go to their dinner, the sergeant of the guard informed him that O'Grady had slept quietly almost all the morning but was then awake and feeling very much better though still weak and nervous do you think he can walk over to my quarters asked mr billings he will try it sir or anything the lieutenant wants him to try then send him over in about ten minutes home once more mr billings started a tiny blaze in his oil stove and soon had a kettle of water boiling merrily sharp to time a member of the guard tapped at the door and on being bidden come in entered ushering in o'grady but meantime by the aid of a little pot of meat juice and some cayenne pepper a glass of hot soup or beef tea had been prepared 
and with some dainty slices of potted chicken and the accompaniments of a cup of fragrant tea and some ship biscuit was in readiness on a little table in the back room telling the sentinel to remain in the shade on the piazza the lieutenant proceeded first to make o'grady sit down in a big wicker armchair for the man in his broken condition was well-nigh exhausted by his walk across the glaring parade in the heat of an arizona noonday sun then he mixed and administered the counterpart of the beverage he had given his prisoner patient in the morning only in point of potency it was an evident falling off but sufficient for the purpose and in a few minutes o'grady was able to swallow his breakfast with evident relish meekly and unhesitatingly obeying every suggestion of his superior his breakfast finished o'grady was then conducted into a cool darkened apartment a back room in the lieutenant's quarters now pull off your boots and outer clothing man spread yourself on that bed and go to sleep if you can if you can't and you want to read there are books and papers on that shelf pin up the blanket on the window and you'll have light enough you shall not be disturbed and i know you won't attempt to leave indeed sir i won't began o'grady eagerly but the lieutenant had vanished closing the door after him and a minute later the soldier had thrown himself upon the cool white bed and was crying like a tired child three or four weeks after this incident to the small regret of his troop and the politely veiled indifference of the commissioned element of the garrison captain buxton concluded to avail himself of a long-deferred leave and turned over his company property to mr billings in a condition that rendered it necessary for him to do a thing that ground him so to speak he had to ask several favors of his lieutenant between whom and himself there had been no cordiality since the episode of the bivouac and an open rupture since mr billings somewhat eventful tour as officer of the day which has just been described it appeared that o'grady had been absent from no duty there were no drills in that scorching june weather but that yielding to the advice of his comrades who knew that he had eaten nothing for two days and was drinking steadily into a condition that would speedily bring punishment upon him he had asked permission to be sent to the hospital where while he could get no liquor there would be no danger attendant upon his sudden stop of stimulant the first sergeant carried his request with the sick book to captain buxton o'grady meantime managing to take two or three more pulls at the bottle and buxton instead of sending him to the hospital sent for him inspected him and did what he had no earthly authority to do directed the sergeant of the guard to confine him at once in the dark cell it will be no punishment as he is now said buxton to himself but it will be hell when he wakes and so it had been and far worse it probably would have been but for mr billings's merciful interference expecting to find his victim in a condition bordering upon the abject and ready to beg for mercy at any sacrifice of pluck or pride buxton had gone to the guard-house soon after retreat and told the sergeant that he desired to see o'grady if the man was fit to come out what was his surprise 
when the soldier stepped forth in his trimmest undressed uniform, erect and steady, and stood unflinchingly before him. A day's rest and quiet, a warm bath, wholesome and palatable food, careful nursing, and the kind treatment he had received, having brought him round with a sudden turn that he himself could hardly understand. "'How is this?' thundered Buxton. "'I ordered you kept in the dark cell.' "'The officer of the day ordered him released, sir,' said the sergeant of the guard. And Buxton, choking with rage, stormed into the mess-room where the younger officers were at dinner, and, regardless of the time, place, or surroundings, opened at once upon his subaltern. "'Mr. Billings, by whose authority did you release O'Grady from the dark cell?' Mr. Billings calmly applied his napkin to his moustache, and then as calmly replied, "'By my own, Captain Buxton.' "'By blank, sir, you exceeded your authority.' "'Not at all, Captain. On the contrary, you exceeded yours.' At this, Buxton flew into a rage that seemed to deprive him of all control over his language. Oaths and imprecations poured from his lips. He raved at Billings, despite the efforts of the officers to quiet him, despite the adjutant's threat to report his language at once to the commanding officer. Mr. Billings paid no attention whatever to his accusations, but went on eating his dinner with an appearance of serenity that only added fuel to his captain's fire. Two or three officers rose and left the table in disgust, and just how far the thing might have gone cannot be accurately told, for in less than three minutes there came a quick, bounding step on the piazza, the clank and rattle of a sabre, and the adjutant fairly sprang back into the room. "'Captain Buxton, you will go at once to your quarters in close arrest, by order of Major Stannard.' Buxton knew his colonel, and that little fire-eater of an adjutant, too well to hesitate an instant. Muttering imprecations on everybody, he went. The next morning O'Grady was released and returned to duty. Two days later, after a long and private interview with his commanding officer, Captain Buxton appeared with him at the officer's mess at dinner-time, made a formal and complete apology to Lieutenant Billings for his offensive language, and to the mess generally for his misconduct, and so the affair blew over, and soon after Buxton left, and Mr. Billings became commander of Troop A. And now, whatever might have been his reputation as to sobriety before, Private O'Grady became a marked man for every soldierly virtue. Week after week he was to be seen every fourth or fifth day, when his guard tour came, reporting to the commanding officer for duty as orderly, the nattiest, trimmest soldier on the detail. "'I always said,' remarked Captain Wayne, that Buxton alone was responsible for that man's downfall, and this proves it. O'Grady has all the instincts of a gentleman about him, and now that he has a gentleman over him, he is himself again. One night after retreat parade, there was cheering and jubilee in the quarters of Troop A. Corporal Quinn had been discharged by expiration of term of service, and Private O'Grady was decorated with his chevrons. 
When October came, the company muster-roll showed that he had won back his old grade, and the garrison knew no better soldier, no more intelligent, temperate, trustworthy, non-commissioned officer than Sergeant O'Grady. In some way or other, the story of the treatment resorted to by his amateur medical officer had leaked out. Whether faulty in theory or not, it was crowned with the verdict of success in practice, and with the strong sense of humor which pervades all organizations wherein the Celt is represented as a component part, Mr. Billings had been lovingly dubbed Doctor by his men, and there was one of their number who would have gone through fire and water for him. One night some herdsmen from up the valley galloped wildly into the post. The Apaches had swooped down, run off their cattle, killed one of the cowboys, and scared off the rest. At daybreak the next morning, Lieutenant Billings, with Troop A and about a dozen Indian scouts, was on the trail, with orders to pursue, recapture the cattle, and punish the marauders. To his disgust, Mr. Billings found that his allies were not of the tribes who had served with him in previous expeditions. All the trusty Apache Mojaves and Wallapais were off with other commands in different parts of the territory. He had to take just what the agent could give him at the reservation, some Apache Yumas, who were total strangers to him. Within forty-eight hours four had deserted and gone back, the others proved worthless as trailers, doubtless intentionally, and had it not been for the keen eye of Sergeant O'Grady, it would have been impossible to keep up the pursuit by night. But keep it up they did, and just at sunset, one sharp autumn evening, away up in the mountains, the advance caught sight of the cattle grazing along the shores of a placid little lake, and in less time than it takes to write it, Mr. Billings and his command tore down upon the quarry, and, leaving a few men to round up the herd, were soon engaged in a lively running fight with the fleeing Apaches, which lasted until dark. When the trumpet sounded the recall, and with horses somewhat blown, but no casualties of importance, the command reassembled and marched back to the grazing ground by the lake. Here a hearty supper was served out, the horses were rested, then given a good feed of barley, and at ten o'clock Mr. Billings, with his second lieutenant and some twenty men, pushed ahead in the direction taken by the Indians, leaving the rest of the men under experienced non-commissioned officers to drive the cattle back to the valley. That night the conduct of the Apache Yuma scouts was incomprehensible. Nothing would induce them to go ahead or out on the flanks. They cowered about the rear of column, yet declared that the enemy could not be hereabouts. At two in the morning Mr. Billings found himself well through a pass in the mountains, high peaks rising to his right and left, and a broad valley in front. Here he gave the order to unsaddle and camp for the night. At daybreak all were again on the alert. The search for the trail was resumed. Again the Indians refused to go out without the troops. But the men themselves found the tracks of Tonto moccasins along the bed of a little stream purling through the canyon, and presently indications that they had made the ascent of the mountain to the south. Leaving a guard with his horses and pack-mules, the lieutenant ordered up his men, and soon the little command was silently picking its way through rock and boulder 
scrub oak and tangled juniper and pine. Rougher and steeper grew the ascent. More and more the Indians cowered, huddling together in rear of the soldiers. Twice Mr. Billings signaled a halt, and with his sergeants fairly drove the scouts up to the front and ordered them to hunt for signs. In vain they protested, No sign, no tanto here. Their very looks belied them, and the young commander ordered the search to be continued. In their eagerness the men soon leaped ahead of the wretched allies, and the latter fell back in the same huddled group as before. After half an hour of this sort of work, the party came suddenly upon a point whence it was possible to see much of the face of the mountain they were scaling. Cautioning his men to keep within the concealment afforded by the thick timber, Mr. Billings and his comrade-lieutenant crept forward and made a brief reconnaissance. It was evident at a glance that the farther they went, the steeper grew the ascent, and the more tangled the low shrubbery, for it was little better, until, near the summit, trees and underbrush and herbage of every description seemed to cease entirely, and a vertical cliff of jagged rocks stood sentinel at the crest, and stretched east and west the entire length of the face of the mountain. "'By Jove, Billings! If they are on top of that it will be a nasty place to root them out of,' observed the junior. "'I'm going to find out where they are, anyhow,' replied the other. "'Now those infernal Yumas have got to scout, whether they want to or not. You stay here with the men, ready to come the instant I send or signal.' In vain the junior officer protested against being left behind. He was directed to send a small party to see if there were an easier way up the hillside farther to the west, but to keep the main body there in readiness to move whichever way they might be required. Then, with Sergeant O'Grady and the reluctant Indians, Mr. Billings pushed up to the left front and was soon out of sight of his command. For fifteen minutes he drove his scouts, dispersed in skirmish order, ahead of him, but incessantly they sneaked behind rocks and trees out of his sight. Twice he caught them trying to drop back, and at last, losing all patience, he sprang forward, saying, "'Then come on, you whelps, if you cannot lead,' and he and the sergeant hurried ahead. Then the Yumas huddled together again, and slowly followed." Fifteen minutes more, and Mr. Billings found himself standing on the edge of a broad shelf of the mountain, a shelf covered with huge boulders of rock, tumbled there by storm and tempest, riven by lightning-stroke, or the slow disintegration of nature from the bare, glaring, precipitous ledge he had marked from below. East and west it seemed to stretch, forbidding and inaccessible. Turning to the sergeant, Mr. Billings directed him to make his way off to the right and see if there were any possibility of finding a path to the summit. Then, looking back down the side and marking his Indians cowering under the trees some fifty yards away, he signaled come up and was about moving farther to his left to explore the shelf when something went whizzing past his head and embedding itself in a stunted oak behind him shook and quivered with the shock a tonto arrow only an instant did he see it photographed as by electricity upon the retina when with a sharp stinging pang and whirring whist and a thud a second arrow better aimed 
tore through the flesh and muscle just at the outer corner of his left eye, and glanced away down the hill. With one spring he gained the edge of the shelf and shouted to the scouts to come on. Even as he did so, bang, bang, went the reports of two rifles among the rocks, and as with one accord the Apache Yumas turned tail and rushed back down the hill, leaving him alone in the midst of hidden foes. Stung by the arrow, bleeding, but not seriously hurt, he crouched behind a rock, with carbine at ready, eagerly looking for the first sign of an enemy. The whiz of another arrow from the left drew his eyes thither, and quick as a flash his weapon leaped to his shoulder, the rocks rang with its report, and one of the two swarthy forms he saw among the boulders tumbled over out of sight. But even as he threw back his piece to reload, a rattling volley greeted him, the carbine dropped to the ground, a strange, numbed sensation had seized his shoulder, and his right arm, shattered by a rifle bullet, hung dangling by the flesh, while the blood gushed forth in a torrent. Defenseless, he sprang back to the edge. There was nothing for it now but to run until he could meet his men. Well he knew they would be tearing up the mountain to the rescue. Could he hold out till then? Behind him, with shout and yells, came the Apaches, arrow and bullet whistling over his head. Before him lay the steep descent, jagged rocks, thick, tangled bushes. It was a desperate chance, but he tried it, leaping from rock to rock, holding his helpless arm in his left hand. Then his foot slipped. He plunged heavily forward. Quickly the nerves threw out their signal for support to the muscles of the shattered member, but its work was done, its usefulness destroyed. Missing its support, he plunged heavily forward, and went crashing down among the rocks eight or ten feet below, cutting a jagged gash in his forehead, while the blood rained down into his eyes and blinded him. But he struggled up and on a few yards more. Then another fall, and well-nigh senseless, utterly exhausted, he lay groping for his revolver. It had fallen from its case. Then all was over. Not yet. Not yet. His ear catches the sound of a voice he knows well. A rich, ringing, Hibernian voice it is. Lieutenant! Lieutenant! Where are ye? And he has strength enough to call, This way, Sergeant, this way! And in another moment O'Grady, with blended anguish and gratitude in his face, is bending over him. Oh, thank God you're not kilt, sir! For when excited O'Grady would relapse into the brogue, but are you much hurt? Badly, sergeant, since I can't fight another round. Then put your arm round my neck, sir, and in a second the little patlander has him on his brawny back. But with only one arm by which to steady himself, the other hanging loose, the torture is inexpressible, for O'Grady is now bounding down the hill, leaping like a goat from rock to rock, while the Apaches, with savage yells, come tearing after them. Twice pausing, O'Grady lays his lieutenant down in the shelter of some large boulder, and, facing about, sends shot after shot up the hill, checking the pursuit and driving the cowardly footpads to cover. Once he gives vent to a genuine Kilkenny hurroo, as a tall Apache drops his rifle and plunges head foremost among the rocks 
with his hands convulsively clasped to his breast. Then the sergeant once more picks up his wounded comrade, despite pleas, orders, or imprecations, and rushes on. I cannot stand it, O'Grady. Go and save yourself. You must do it. I order you to do it. Every instant the shots and arrows whiz closer, but the sergeant never winces, and at last, panting, breathless, having carried his chief full three hundred yards down the rugged slope, he gives out entirely, but with a gasp of delight points down among the trees. Here come the boys, sir. Another moment, and the soldiers are rushing up the rocks beside them, their carbines ringing like merry music through the frosty air, and the Apaches are scattering in every direction. Old man, are you much hurt? is the whispered inquiry his brother officer can barely gasp for want of breath, and reassured by the faint grin on Mr. Billings' face, and a barely audible arm-busted, that's all, pitch in and use em up. He pushes on with his men. In ten minutes the affair is ended. The Indians have been swept away like chaff. The field and the wounded they have abandoned are in the hands of the troopers. The young commander's life is saved, and then, and for long after, the hero of the day is Buxton's bete noir, the worst man in the troop. End of section 19